Welcome to Mars Messina Presents. I am Mars and today is Saturday, December 9th, 2023. As we end the year, we find ourselves in a season of what should be good news. Yes, some of our religious philosophies are filled with good news at this time. Um, I think we're approaching the third night of Hanukkah when light came back into the world. In the Christian religion, light comes back into the world in December. And even in nature, even as we're approaching the longest night of the year, what's going on underground? Incredibly lively things are going on in the dark. And it feels like when we watch the news, there's been a blackout on good news. The old saying, what is it? The old saying is, um, it goes, um, if it bleeds, it leads. And we are seeing a lot of blood in today's news on our uh, 10 o'clock news, on TV, on whatever internet radio you're listening to, uh, anything you read, bad, bad, bad ugly news that can really drag you down. So, what I would like to do for episode 134, as we are, we find ourselves surrounded with and saturated by sad and scary news, I would like to talk about some good news. Now, I kind of had to go hunting and pecking because good news is never on page one. So I had to really look around for some articles, um, and, and I, I found some. I found some, and I'm gonna read, um, maybe I'll read some clips for you, or I will summarize what I've read. Okay, so even though we are surrounded with media that just screams death and destruction to us, we have to remind ourselves we are not our media. We should be the creators thereof. And if it's good news you are seeking, you have to be the one to tell the good news since they won't. Okay, so let's talk about something life affirming and life enhancing. We already know there's danger out there, but there's also good things going on. And that will be the focus of today's episode. So <clears throat> I am your bobbleheaded news head um, that you see on your TV screen. And here is today's topics. So first, I read about this, <clears throat> I encountered an article that talks about a collaborative study that is, <clears throat> it involves experts in both Europe and in the United States. They have found that stem cell treatment appears to protect the brains of MS patients from further damage, MS being multiple sclerosis. Excuse me while I take a drink of water. <clears throat> so MS is a multiple, I'm sorry, it's an autoimmune disorder. <clears throat> and it, it's quite common and it's on the rise and no one really knows why. So they're trying to get ahead of this awful disease. So 
<clears throat> this promising study that I just mentioned. It was published in the peer-reviewed scientific journal called Cell Stem Cell. And this research is hoped to lead to further clinical trials that could provide treatment for progressive MS. So MS is kind of an umbrella term, term for many disorders. Um, usually, I, I guess the most common form of MS, the, the garden variety, if you will, is like you have certain lesions on certain places in your body and they don't extend beyond that. And they usually are found like in the lower spine. So you might see somebody whose gait is a little bit off. <clears throat> and with medication, they are, at a, they are able to manage their symptoms. Okay, but then there's other people, they are on medication and it helps, but the disease is progressing. So this study is for those people who have the progressive forms of MS. Now, globally, more than 2 million people live with MS. And while some treatments currently available can reduce the severity and the frequency of relapses, two thirds of patients still transition into a debilitating secondary progressive phase of the disease within 25 to 30 years of diagnosis. So yeah, even though most of them might have this garden variety type, um, two-thirds will progress into a secondary phase, which is not good. So, like I said, MS is an autoimmune disorder like lupus or ALS or Crohn's disease. And MS is characterized by the body's immune system attacking and damaging myelin. Now, myelin, it comes in gray matter and it comes in white matter, and you've probably heard those terms. And what myelin is, is the protective sheath of tissue that surrounds nerve fibers. It's basically the electrical system of your body. And when it becomes sclerosed or scarred, that disrupts messages sent around the brain and the spinal cord, which is why you often see some folks with MS, um, they have motor issues. They, they, um, it's very hard for them to walk or their fingers just clench into a fist and don't come out. Um, some people have eye issues. They, they're seeing double vision. That's what this sclerosing does to the white myelin. There is an immune cell called a microglial, um, I think it's called just micro, microglial. It's a microglial cell. And what happens is you have, we all have a nervous system that is an overprotective mother at times. And with MS, it's really overprotective. It looks at parts of the body, especially the white myelin, as if it's an invader, like it's cancer, so it attacks it. So there's an immune cell in the body called microglial, and that will attack the central nervous system in progressive forms of MS, which causes chronic inflammation and damage to the nerve cells of the body. Now, recent research <clears throat> um, 
involving this transplantation of stem cells has raised expectations that therapies could be developed to reduce this damage. So not only might this halt any further progression, but it might actually reduce damage that's already there. Stem cells, okay? Previous experiments in mice from the Cambridge University unit of this new study team have shown that skin cells reprogrammed to be brain cells. Okay, I'm gonna say this again, because this is magnificent what the body can do. Skin cells reprogrammed to be brain stem cells. Yes, it is possible. And I can go into a million different um, examples of that happening. But this is happening in a lab. They're taking skin cells, reprogramming them to be brain stem cells. They are transplanted, transplanted into the nervous system. And they are finding, in many cases, it is reducing inflammation. And repairing damage caused by MS. So the studies are still ongoing, but it's a strong theory that this can happen, that you can take a patient's skin cells, reprogram them into being brain stem cells, and then transplanting them into the nervous system. This might sound like Frankensteining, but it really is not because the body does this automatically. If you have a cell that's doing anything in your body, let's say it's um, a respiratory cell, and during respiration we get we get rid of waste materials that we don't need, and what happens with some of these waste materials is instead of leaving the body, they become another type of cell. You know, like an immune cell. Okay, the body regenerates cells all the time and uses them for different things and. That's all that's happening in this lab. And they're finding these incredible um, eureka moments, okay? The research team, um, again, it incorporates experts from the UK, from the US, Switzerland, and Italy. Now they completed a world first early stage clinical trial in which neural stem cells were injected into the brains of 15 Italian patients from two different Italian hospitals. And all of these patients had secondary MS. The transplant patients were followed for 12 months. No deaths or serious adverse events related to the treatment were observed throughout that year. While any side effects that did happen were mild, they were transient, and they were reversible. All of the patients, all of them had a high degree of disability at the start of the clinical trial. In fact, they were all wheelchair bound. But during the 12 month observation period, they showed no increase in disability or worsening of symptoms. Most of the patients shown symptoms, showed symptoms that would indicate, or I'm sorry, I'm, I'm going to start that part again. None, none of the patients showed symptoms that would indicate a relapse or a sign of clinical progression 
and clinical progression, by the way, uh, is a marker for substantial stability of the pathology, which means that the MS was becoming unstable, which is good, it was weakening. And that's what they want to do further study on. Is it really weakening? Can it go away? You know, um, so they're, they're continuing to work on this. Now, there was a subgroup of patients. They were also assessed for changes in the volume of brain tissue associated with disease progression. And it was found that the larger the dose of injected stem cells, the smaller the reduction in brain volume over time. So it's good to know that people with advanced forms of MS can basically receive naturally occurring treatment that can ameliorate the progression of the disease from which they suffer. Great news. So <clears throat> our next item addresses trees. And these trees, um, and I'm going to talk about some specific, tr specific trees that utilized deep stores of energy in their roots to sprout new growth. And this happened weeks after they were charred by fire. So there were devastating fires, um, again, in California's redwoods that sparked feared, fear that the trees would never recover from their burns, but they've already begun to heal themselves, um, researchers are finding. So after lightning sparked a fire in California's Big Basin Redwoods State Park during a recent drought, scientists were worried that these ancient trees were going to be irreparably damaged However, they also knew that the trees very obviously evolved to deal with fire over millions of years. The trees um, themselves, when they get damaged, they will generate um, thick shaggy barks, which are more or less fire resistant, kind of like a fireman's jacket, okay? But in this case, when there was a lightning strike during this drought, the fire blazed right up to the crowns of the trees and torched every needle along the way. This is why the scientists were worried. They just saw these trees go up like matches. Now, though thin, the pine needles of, um, of the redwood, okay, the pine needles contain all the necessary equipment for photosynthesis photosynthesis but if a fire burns them it becomes unclear if the tree can regenerate energy drew peltier a tree ecophysiologist of um i think he's at northern yeah he's at northern arizona lord 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 I'm going to start that again, okay? Drew Peltier, a tree ecophysiologist or ecophysiologist at, yes, Northern Arizona University, had an interview with Science Magazine, 
saying it was shocking. It really seemed like most of the trees were going to die when he saw that fire go all the way up to the crowns of the trees. However, research published by Peltier and his colleagues showed that new buds had been lying dormant for a long time under the bark of those trees and sugars produced from photosynthesis decades ago were used to power the new buds out into the sunlight. So these trees have deep, deep reserves of energy that come out when they're needed and they hold on to for many, many years until it's needed. Some of the ancient trees of the Big Basin, check this out, are over 2,000 years old and are now believed to be able to recover over time. So the trees themselves are proof of this, but now we're finding out how it's happening. So to test the findings, these recent findings, Melissa Enright of the U.S. Forest Service used black plastic bags to block the sunlight on some of the charred trees from reaching the shoots as they emerged. But the shoots carried on shooting and soon enough they were pine boughs. So again, there's life going on in the dark. Life begets life. Then Enright and her colleagues like Peltier were able to radiocarbon date the sugars in the boughs to assess their age. Check this out. The average age of the sugar molecules was 21 years old, meaning the tree was using energy, energy, energy. The, the tree was using energy it generated over two decades ago to power new growth in the future. This is, see these, these life forms, they're not only thinking of themselves, and I, I have thinking in quotes because I think nature thinks differently than we do, but they think about future generations in ways that human beings do not. Okay, so again, the average age of the sugar molecules was 21 years old, meaning that the tree generated energy that it kept in store for over two decades in order to power new growth in the future. Then by looking at the individual carbon molecules inside the sugars, they saw that some of the carbon was three times as old as that. It's amazing. Peltier said, said it challenges the whole image of tree metabolism and gives real hope that our planet's oldest trees can survive fires and other hazards that may be occurring because of climate change. And we need those trees in order to breathe. Now there's more good news that is emerging from Northern California. In the Bay Area, which is home to the cradle of 21st century civilization, Silicon Valley, okay? It's also home to um, wild river ecosystems capable 
of supporting salmon runs. Salmon runs, okay? They are seeing salmon as large as 30 pounds and as long as 35 inches running up the Guadalupe River watershed by the hundreds. Creeks in San Jose like Los Gatos and Guadalupe nearly lost their native salmon populations as trash piled up on their gravel beds. The South Bay Clean Creeks Coalition, which is a nonprofit responsible for the salmon's return, removed, check this out, 1.3 million pounds of trash from the creeks. Trash that not only included things like bottles and tires, but also entire cars and mattresses. Researchers are now studying the salmon and tracking their origin, hoping to answer whether they are native returners or if they are hatchery strays. This year, all the fish are just engorged. They're humongous. And this is according to Steve Holmes, executive director of the South Bay Clean Creeks Coalition. It's a nice trend, and I hope it will continue as we move forward. Salmon will return from oceans to the rivers, creeks, and eventually even the same tributary they were born in to lay and fertilize eggs on beds of gravel. Their bodies flush bright red and pink from the activity of their reproductive organs. They store large amounts of muscle and fat from their time at sea to use for the grueling trip upriver. And the fish tend to be battered and exhausted by the journey's end. Most of them will die after mating, but a few typically the females, will live on to return to the ocean in January. Salmon are among California's most valued natural resources, giving their economic and ecological importance. The fish are valued both as a food source and as a species of cultural significance by the indigenous California tribes. Again, and we talk about this in many of the episodes, our indigenous people are very in tune with nature and they have a lot to teach us, but we're getting in their way. We're getting in our own way. Um, but these salmon are very important for many different reasons. And it's the California tribes that know this. Additionally, salmon runs, salmon runs, function as enormous pumps that push vast amounts of marine nutrients from the ocean to the headwaters of otherwise low productivity rivers, which is why they are so important to the ecosystem. So <clears throat> we are actually surrounded by good news, even though we don't recognize it. The nature of our planet is good news. The nature of our bodies even contain good news. Nature continually provides life, health, and healing. 
Therefore, we human beings need to shift our mentality from an economy of extraction to an economy of regeneration. Instead of perpetuating an economy where resources are exploited and depleted, we must embrace an economy of holistic and sustainable approaches to economic development where natural resources are replenished, ecosystems are protected, and community well-being takes precedence. By adopting this mindset, our focus will shift from short-term gains, gains to long-term gains and regenerative solutions that benefit both the present and the future generations, just like those trees. And we can even do this with our bodies if we don't flood it with chemicals all the time. I'm not saying that sickness will be eradicated off earth, but so much of it can be through our choices. Now the water and the land, we need to see that they are not things to be owned. They are things to be respected and cultivated. We can say the same thing about our bodies. We are talking about sentient entities deserving reverence and our responsibility is to not exploit and dominate land and resources or to push our bodies beyond their limits or to underuse them or to abuse them. And sometimes I don't think we even realize what we're doing to our bodies just in the food that we eat. We need to embrace a reciprocal relationship with nature, a relationship rooted in respect for its inherent value and a commitment to its preservation. And this preservation is that of the planet and of our own bodies. We need to see ourselves as stewards rather than owners, and we must safeguard the natural world for future generations and as we do so, we, in the process, only become stronger and healthier. So the more we give, the more we receive. And this is good news. I mean, if you're somebody who reads scriptures and believes in God, the gospel, good news. It is better to give than to receive because then everybody receives. And this is what should be discussed on the 10 o'clock news and on the front page of newspapers. And if it was, I think we would have much less war, much less crime, and much less sickness. But to get there, we can't resolve these issues without addressing social and economic injustices. By acknowledging all the present disparities and inequalities prevalent in today's society, we realize that any meaningful solution to the health crises we face or to the climate crisis must incorporate equitable distribution of resources, tackle structural barriers, and address systematic injustices. And anytime I say something like this, somebody calls me a commie. Well, you are talking about two very different things. So if you're talking about a communist country like Venezuela, you're talking about, again, 
a handful of elite that abuse a system. And don't tell me it's not happening here in our so-called democratic republic, because it is, and it happens all the time, and it's happening to you. But if we were just more respectful, like I've been talking about of nature, if we were more mindful of the choices we make and we were a little more collaborative in building a better society, you would see this more clearly. And this wouldn't be so-called communism the way you think communism runs. No, this would be, this would be a true democratic republic actually. We need to accept that true wealth lies in healthy communities and ecosystems. These interconnected aspects are essential for sustaining human life and our overall quality of living. Instead of focusing solely on amassing wealth through material gains, we need to invest and we need to nurture social and natural environments that support our very existence. This would be an enormously fulfilling task to pursue as well as a sustainable way to live. And we would be looking up and not hanging our heads down. Finally, the earth does not belong to us. We belong to the earth. We are not the owners. We are not the masters. But rather we are an intrinsic part of the earth and we are stewards. We rely on the earth for our sustenance. We rely on the earth for resources and we rely on it as a home in which to thrive and not just survive. And the way we're treating it now, we kind of see it as an enemy and treat it that way. Traditional indigenous knowledge is crucial for sustainable resource management. And this is both a conservative and a liberal belief. And I think we can all get behind it as our indigenous people do. This is actually quite conservative, even though the words that come out seem liberal. This is all encompassing. Honoring nature is a beautiful way of life that generates good news continuously. And that's my good news for today. It is now time for Bedtime Stories from the Acoustic Bookshelf. And here is a reading of the poem, Stopping by Woods on a Snowy Evening by Robert Frost. Whose woods these are? I think I know. His house is in the village though. He will not see me stopping here to watch his woods fill up with snow. My little horse must think it queer to stop without a farmhouse near between the woods and frozen lake the darkest evening of the year. He gives his harness bells a shake to ask if there is some mistake. The only other sounds, the sweep of easy wind and downy flake. 
the woods are lovely, dark, and deep. But I have promises to keep and miles to go before I sleep and miles to go before I sleep. Until next week, arrivederci.